0: Donna, I think we're on page 95. Thank you. Anybody else? Is it 95, gang? Ellen? I'm sorry? Uh, uh, is Ellen, is it 95? Yes, yeah. yeah. I five? have. All right. And, um, um,
1: I'm sorry, I, can't, I forgot how to pronounce your name, Malene. Um, You don't have the book yet, right? <laughs>
2: No, no, I don't have it. Okay, I will share. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Kim. Did that lose the sharing?
0: No, you've got it. You can see it. Yes. Milena, we go in alphabetical order, and so you would be after Kim if you wanted to read, but you don't have to, but it'd be great.
2: I'll just listen, thank you very much.
0: Okay.
1: Let's roll. Okay, I think uh, Donna is first.
3: It's been a while. Um. <laughs>
1: so what's practice? What is practice, Donna?
3: We're gonna find out. Oh, okay. (laughs) What is practice? If you love the sacred and despise the ordinary, you are still holding in the ocean of delusion, excuse me, still bobbing in the (laughs) ocean of delusion. (laughs) Uh, Zen master Rinzai. Sometimes people say Zen practice doesn't work. Well, of course it doesn't work. The only thing that works is us. Our practice is ourself. Practice is about awareness, and awareness is just our own selves. It's not something, some formula that you can learn from a book and then do it. It's not a form of calisthenics.
4: Practice is the act of placing our awareness on what is occurring in this moment as best we can. It is the act of attention to this moment is the act of being as honest as we can and noticing what is really going on with us in this moment. Noticing that we may not like what's going on and noticing our thoughts and impulses about what we would prefer to be going on. Finally, practice is experiencing what all of this is in our body, our being, and resting in that. Practice is doing this over and over, thousands and thousands of times, until it just until it just wears out, we are the joy, love, and compassion of this moment, regardless of what it may look like on the outside.
1: So it, and it just wears out, I assume. Well, earlier she's calling it the practice. So is the practice what wears out?
4: Mm, let's see
1: in the In the sentence. It is the act of attention to this moment. It is the act of being. So that's all the practice. But then she says it just wears out. I'm wondering what it is there. Is it still the practice? That doesn't make a lot of sense. What wears out?
3: It's probably all of our impulses. Um, what does she say? Um... We continue to go on, we notice what's going on, noticing our thoughts and impulses, what we would prefer to be going on. That's probably what Burns up I would get. Yeah,
1: that makes sense. Thank you. Yeah.
5: Practice is that which enables us to live a life that makes some sense and is harmonious. I don't mean it's something sugary sweet. It's not but it promotes the welfare of ourselves and other people. When we practice, we pay attention. The more we practice, the greater our understanding is, not just of ourselves, but of how life works and how things more or less go. When we have that, we tend to have a life that's more satisfactory, feels better to us. We like, basically, to make sense.
1: The act of sitting is part of the practice. It might seem very boring, very ordinary, but the ordinary (coughs) is just a manifestation of the sacred. They're not different. They're absolutely the same thing. Whether you're working on your car engine, going for a walk with a friend, or taking piano lessons. Each of these things done with awareness is both ordinary and sacred. When you can feel this duality of the everyday and the sacred without twisting your mind around it, you'll begin to feel a joy that embraces both happiness and unhappiness.
6: Our lives seem to consist with a string of moments. I get up in the morning and the moments just stick off as I go through the day. And usually... We wait, 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 uh,
1: just a second, Nancy. Oh, yeah. Um, Who's saying, um, oh, Malene, the page isn't changing for you?
3: No, the page
0: isn't changing. What? The the page is not changing.
1: Oh. But you can see it, but it's not, isn't that funny? Just a second. Let me fix that. I moved it from one screen to the other, and then. It, it didn't behave right. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for saying something. Yes. Okay, go on, uh, Nancy. Sorry. No, it's okay.
6: <laughs> mm-hmm. And usually we, we each moment, if we're honest about it, with a little twist of a reaction in our mind, and that reaction is, I like this, but I don't like that, or I'm neutral about it. It's the same with the people who cross our path. I like them, or I don't like them, or I haven't thought about it. Particularly, this is how we respond to the tasks that confront us during the day. I don't want to do that. It doesn't suit me. Or it's okay with me. I'm glad to do that. We live as if we have a little jungle that's sitting inside us walking a finger at everything. Now we're not really living our life. We're just trying to get it on fixed. So it suits the church. We can't enjoy our experience on other people because the judgment and the emotion, this concussion in our head runs our life.
7: Our practice enables us to take the ordinary moments of our life, one after another, and experience them without judging, trying to fix, holding tightly, or running away. Suppose I'm a quiet person and I meet somebody who is noisy and boisterous. My first thought might be, I don't like her. The judgment has already pushed me into withdrawing. The only thing we know is the fact that we are reacting. Often we don't even notice we are reacting, we just react, 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 and react. It probably occurs a thousand times a day, almost constantly. For most of us, the only time we become aware of our reactions at all is when they get stronger. When we get strongly criticized by someone or we fail in a test, or we've looked forward to going somewhere and find that we can't go because we're ill. I just went through that last one. These are (coughs) taught, excuse me. These are
3: the times when we become aware of our constant judging and have a good chance to look at it. If you're sitting in meditation every day, you have an opportunity to see how your mind works.
4: I have hiccups. I'm not going to read.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and Glenn, Europe.
5: <laughs> no, I think
3: it's Dale i think gail's
5: oh, I'm sorry
3: i just don't want glenn to get missed again
5: he did get missed i noticed that
3: oh
1: i guess it was my fault sorry glenn
5: sorry gail
0: <laughs> we're in rare we, form tonight do
5: we like or not like this <laughs> how's this going <laughs> effective practice As you continue your practice, you begin to see those thoughts in a more dispassionate form, which means you label them. It's painful and sometimes kind of dull to do that. But something begins to be learned. For example, I can hardly ever meet anyone without forming a judgment. But having this awareness when I meet someone, I'm much more aware of my tendency to do that. Awareness makes a difference after a while, and you begin and you can begin to soften up a little bit as a person, you're not so quick to put a label or a judgment on just anybody. That's effective
3: practice.
0: Effective practice has two parts. The first is daily sitting. Until you've been sitting, I'd say 25 or 30 years or more, you can't skip it. We all need it. That's the discipline that really helps us get more skilled at paying attention. The second part of effective practice is our ability to pay attention to life as we're living it, when we're not sitting. This might be very weak at first, but as we practice, we become more aware of our life as opposed to getting caught in it. Maybe once an hour, we notice we're caught. In truth, we can get caught more often than that, but we tend not to see the little things. We begin to see that if somebody hurts
1: our feelings, for instance, it might be two days before that really settles out, depending on how much we're hurt. It might take months for some people. For people who like feuds, it can take 20 years, a 100 years, <coughs> perhaps 300 years. Look at these countries that have stayed at war for centuries. The fixed notion that the other guys are all wrong, and I'm right, is so strong by now, that they don't even question it.
6: The body's intelligence, when you see, you can feel what true awareness is in the body. In the Bible, Luke 17, 21, it is written, the kingdom of God lies within thee. I don't think that means enlightenment is sitting in a little place in there. I think it means awakening is within you, available in every cell of your body. When we sit, we learn where we hold our emotions in our body and where we are sensitive. This isn't something you can overthink. You can have six PhDs, it doesn't help. Maybe it makes it worse.
7: You will gain more from your sitting if you keep it simple. There's a place for philosophy and books, but before you dive into a book for the answer, which it won't be there, you have to dive into yourself. Traditional Western thought often proceeds as if the body has no intelligence, but the body stores a lot of knowledge. When you feel threatened, for example, the body reacts long before the message reaches the brain. The reaction takes place before it reaches the brain. Our thinking is not the most important thing for our survival. The most important thing is the innate intelligence that lives in the body. I heard a,
1: uh, a, a psychophysiologist. She said that the most important thing was the uh, the the um, body regulating the chemistry. Which is kind of like an in, innate intelligence, it's not the stuff we're doing consciously but the fact that, that this incredibly complex system is working. But, or is it innate, is that innate intelligence?
5: I don't, I. it's interesting because this sense of being a person always takes credit for everything. So it really is kind of noticing. In a way, how there's so much about our movements, about you know, throughout the day that we aren't doing,
3: <laughs> you oh. know,
5: breathing, um, you know, even me moving my hand like this—I didn't think to do that. It just starts doing it.
1: Yeah, you know, like I went to the grocery store today, but did I really? You know, what part of that did I do?
5: Well, we think that. We're doing it, you know, or this sense of this separate self is doing it, you know. Um, but it's pretty interesting to kind of dive into that and notice.
3: Okay. Um, practice is returning, always back to the body, feeling the original pain, anger, or whatever emotion it is that you're trying to cover. Human beings want to cover everything so we don't feel it. We don't want to go out of our way to feel something that's unpleasant, do we? No. If you're like me, you'll find some way to cover it. But the longer we practice, the more quickly we see what we're doing.
4: Not turning away. Life takes us to a certain point where living with our actual experiences covered over becomes unsatisfactory. Say you get a new car. The minute you get a new car, you have to worry about it. Someone's drawing close to me in the parking lot. They're getting too close. The least little scratch becomes a disaster. Everything about the new car becomes a worry, including the bigger insurance. We start to see that there is no outside thing that will satisfy us. There is no object, no relationship, and no amount of money that will make everything better. At this point, practice can begin.
5: Hmm. That's interesting to me because I think we've also kind of heard too that it's this movement of wanting something that seems to cause a lot of suffering. And so if I get the new car for a split second, even before I'm worried about it being scratched, I feel happy you know, like something's been filled. But that doesn't stick around for very long. (laughs) Then I start worrying about the parking lot and the scratches. And then the wanting becomes, I don't want the car to get scratched, you know. So it's, you know. Has anyone
7: ever read uh, Shibumi and the art of Volvo bashing, where He used to drive his old um, jalopy up and down the road, and it wouldn't start, so he'd kick it or throw something at it, and the kids, to honor him, would do the same as he drove by. And then he got a brand new car. He had to replace it, and he knew what was going to happen. So he just brought a baseball bat to the dealership and went, oomph and got it over with.
5: But I I guess what I'm noticing is every time I get something I think I want for a split second, Mm -hmm. I feel satisfied, but it doesn't, but it doesn't last. And um, yeah, that's, that's where the suffering comes in, right? (laughs) Oh, was it my turn to read or? Um,
4: I I think so.
0: I
3: think you
5: Okay. Um, Things don't suddenly get fixed when we sit and pay attention. Practice limps along most of the time. It's confusing, it's messy, it's discouraging. Any good practice is all of these, all these things, at least some of the time, because practice is basically a struggle to understand the nature of our experience. It can feel like a violent struggle. It's by no means an easy, peaceful trip.
0: And the main thing that happens from effective practice, it sounds even worse, is that you just get, you just get more and more disappointed with all the things you thought were going to make you happy. These things are fine, but our attachment to them loosens and our need for them begins to weaken. I can finish out if you want. The more we practice, the less we turn away. And the more our actual experiencing of life gets stronger. We begin to know who we are. To know who you are doesn't mean something magical. It just means that over time, as things come up, you know how you are, mind and body, with that. And then you can move on to the next thing. There's no perfection anywhere, but there's more spaciousness. There's more peace. Is more being awake and experiencing your life. These are the fruits of effective practice.
1: Uh, What we hold in the body. Lift your arm straight out in front of you, make it as tight as you can, contract every muscle. Now let go of all the tension you can, oh, without letting your arm fall. Let go of everything but the functional tension your arm needs to stay up. Take three slow breaths, inhaling <coughs> and exhaling, then let it down. Pause for a moment. Try the other side.
6: Now contract, now contract your face. Close your eyes and make your face as tight as can you. Imagine you worry, upset, or angry. Now, without altering the basic outlines of your face, begin to feel the same way you did when you relaxed your arm. Keep your face the same, strong up, but let on the extraneous tension out. Notice when you let it on go. Can you hear the sounds outside more clearly? Can you take it in more?
7: It's very rare for our body to hold only the tension it needs to keep functioning. See if you can observe your body during the day. If you have a minute between tasks, take a look and see what tension you're holding. Most of the time we're doing what we're doing and we've added tension. It may be almost imperceptible or it may be very, very noticeable. Of course,
3: we need to have enough tension to do whatever we're doing. If we're holding a cup of coffee, there has to be some tension to hold the cup up or the coffee will spill. If you're sitting up, you need some functional tension or you will fall over. The only time the body is really freed from that kind of tension is when you're flat on your back. An extra
4: space. Life is, very, it, life is a very simple matter. We're just doing what we're doing but we add extra tension all the time. If you stop and feel your face, you'll notice it's usually a little bit tight. We don't need that tension. We have a face. We don't need to have an extra face. A Rinzai Zen master once said, add no head above your own. We're hardly ever operating with just a functional level of tension. Even if you don't know what your automatic habits are, you probably know how they feel. Our unconscious habits and reactions make us rigid. Our bodies get tight. We may even get sick.
5: Just wanted to comment that, um, have you ever um, had somebody just tell you to relax? Let's say you're, I don't know, with your Zen teacher or with a therapist or with a good friend or somebody just, or maybe your yoga teacher and all of a sudden they'll tell you to relax. And you didn't even realize that you weren't relaxed until they say, relax. And then you'll go, oh, I had my shoulders up. Oh, Mm -hmm. you know, it was pretty interesting how we just carry that unconsciously. Um, Anyway, functioning is what Zen practice is all about. Our practice is to function according to the demands of life, not according to our personal agenda for what we think life should be. I want this. I'm nervous about this. Maybe that meeting won't go right. Maybe they won't like me. Every time you have a thought like that, tension builds up in your body. A thought. Poof. Tension. Up, up, up. Nobody who is human is entirely free of it. But as the need for life to be a certain way eventually leaves us, the tension slowly releases and we are more and more free. The more our practice matures, the more the body is free of anything but functional tension. It has taken me decades for my body to be naturally relaxed most of the time. Get back to the body. The thoughts are repetitive. They just go round and round and round. You aren't going to lose a thing if you just let them be for a moment. They'll all be back.
0: Transforming Pain Our difficulties are so important in our life. They remind us to pay attention. When something hits our life hard, it goes through our body like a jolt. We feel some discomfort. Our true experience is in there, but it's mixed up with our opinions, judgments, and worries concerning how it should be. Someone who was new to sitting practice once complained to me, this practice is not making me feel good. If you need something to make you feel good, practice is not much help. But if we just experience the pain without thinking and overthinking, The pain transforms, nothing stays painful forever, not at all. When we experience the pain and the challenges fully, they don't stay as long, they lessen because so much of our pain is in trying not to feel it.
1: When we experience the pain without thinking, judging or hiding, then it begins to slowly fade. I had a little toothache and I I went to the toothache and (coughs) looked at it almost like a third person looking at it. And just for a moment there, it completely went away. It was really interesting. Did I read the rest of that sentence? Yeah. Yes. (coughs) It changes. If you get your mind out of the way, the pain can start to dissolve. It opens up and finally it just disappears. It is a different way of living. It takes a lot of daily sitting to keep the courage available to do this kind of work. The discipline, the bravery and the consistency of sitting regularly builds our ability to experience our true lives.
6: How do you stay with the pen? You stay with it as long as you can, and in a bit you will drift out. You might stay with the pen for 2 or 5 seconds at first, and then you will drift, because you want to drift. But when you do it and keep sitting every day, the ability to stay with increases, and sometimes, all of a sudden, you find you staying with it for 10 or 30 seconds. When you get up to 30 seconds it's a different world and it's not a matter of virtue whether you stay with it or not it isn't good or bad we do the best we can that's all we can ever do nothing we do is wasted if we're aware of it
7: thoughts and sensations nobody likes anguish but the idea that there's some other way across the bridge from unreality to reality besides going across it, is really an illusion. Americans are good at unreality. Our whole culture is based on trying to alter our reality. It hurts, well, go buy a new dress. It hurts, get a new partner, it hurts, take a pill. We have dozens and dozens of ways to cover that hurt. And because we live in a society that has so much stuff, In general, those ways are much more available to us than to people in earlier or less affluent societies. Even for practitioners,
3: usually when we're feeling some hurt, the mind is going, it's so bad. I'm suffering so hard. It shouldn't be like this for me. And, oh yes, I'm experiencing it. That's not experiencing, that's thinking. When we label our thoughts and go back to the body, we are actually splitting off our thinking so we see it's just thinking. When we do that, we're able to see the difference between thinking and sensation. If somebody hurt my feelings, my body gets rigid, my face gets tight. If I just stay there, I may be able to notice the difference between my thoughts and my sensations and this is the path that alleviates anguish. I use
4: the word anguish because that's how most people think of it when they are completely caught up in their thinking-based resistance to reality. And the way I use that word, experiencing, cannot involve anguish because there is no thinking. And that's a very important difference.
5: One reason to sit every day is that sitting can develop our ability to separate thoughts and sensations. For most people who haven't practiced, achieving a separation is almost impossible. They don't know what it means to stay with just the experience. They're always mixing their sensations up with their thinking about the other person, about what happened, about what's wrong. That's the drama. If you don't sit every day, you're really not doing yourself any favors. Sitting is what builds that ability.
0: Sitting can be very stark and plain some days. I have that thought and I have that thought and that thought and that thought and that thought. I just return again and again to whatever is going on. You just do it and do it and do it. There's an inward shift, a maturing that takes place that enables us when somebody really does happen, when something really does happen in our lives, to do this kind of practice. For the person who doesn't practice regularly, you think you're dealing with anguish, but you're not. You're dealing with thoughts plus body sensations.
1: Look at the thoughts first and then just stay with your body sensations. Then you can't use the word anguish. If I poked my hand, it would be painful. It's only when I add commentary. Oh, isn't this awful? You know, this shouldn't be happening to me, that the sensation turns to anguish. Otherwise, it just is what it is. I still take care of it. I still ease the pain, but I'm not in anguish. How many of you know the... um? Buddha Sutra on the two darts or the two arrows G- Gail does and Ellen does Donna does I know and Nancy does would you like it's just a paragraph or so should we read that it connects so nicely with this and then and then write um, I, love, I like that
5: that when you're talking about the second arrow right,
1: right. Y- yes mm-hmm. Perfect. go for it okay yeah. <laughs> Stop sharing. <laughs> There, now I'm, I'm, oops, here we go. Screen share. Okay, whose turn is it to read? It's me. Okay.
6: The power oh, me, I'll show you the
1: picture, okay. <laughs> go on.
6: The parable of the second arrow is a well known Buddhist story about dealing with suffering more skillfully. It is said that the Buddha once asked a student, If a person is struck by an arrow, is it painful? If the person is struck by a second arrow, is it even more painful? He then went on to explain, In life, we can't always control the first arrow. However, the second arrow is our reaction to the first. This second arrow is optional.
7: This is sometimes interpreted as meaning that pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. I'm not sure I would go that far. To my mind, there are s- clearly situations where to experience suffering is the only human response. However, it's true that our interpretation of events plays a large role in how we experience them, and that we do have a tendency to over-dramatize much of what happens to us. Let's say someone at home or work leaves a pile of dirty dishes on the bench. You notice it and have an immediate reaction of annoyance. So far, so good, but what often happens next is we think he, she is always leaving a mess for me to clean up. How many times have I said, blah, 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 They clearly didn't care for me at all. Why am I always unappreciated? It would have been better had I not been born at all.
3: (laughs) So that last bit is probably, hopefully, a slight exaggeration. (laughs) Uh, We can go quite quickly from a situation, someone annoys us, our arm hurts, we're coming down with a cold, to extrapolating all kinds of emotions and thoughts from it, which have little to do with the original stimulus. This can be seen as the second arrow of the second arrows of suffering, the ones we add onto the original arrows, which life is already flinging at us in any case. I was talking about this recently on the phone to a friend who was at home with his sick family. He, his wife, and their four young children had all been struck down with the flu and were all at various stages of sickness and recovery. What he'd noticed was his own reaction to being ill. It felt wrong and unfair. He was young, and he had been riding his bike to work to get fit, and he shouldn't have been settled with this illness. His children, on the other hand, played when they had a a bit of energy and slept when they felt unwell. They took the illness in their stride and simply responded to how they were feeling at the time. Of course, they didn't enjoy being sick, but they didn't beat themselves up mentally with dialogues of what should or shouldn't have been. They were dealing with the first arrow, but not the second one.
4: We probably find ourselves dealing with the second arrow of suffering many times in the course of a day. The story is not about denying our initial reaction to pretend we are immune from pain. It is about having a choice in how to proceed next. Over time, having an awareness of this choice, we uh, choice and refraining from flinging endless second arrows at ourselves, we can help uh, can help to liberate us from much unnecessary suffering
1: that's not, that's not really you know other than the first part what Buddha said, but still I think it says it well mm-hmm. should we uh write now, Glenn
0: yes, I think we should i was uh I was looking at a prompt um I think not turning away is almost the same prompt that we've, we've kind of worked on twice already. Anybody have a suggestion? I think Maybe it's a big one. It. You like that We're one? About not two away?
4: arrows. The, yeah, the second uh, arrow.
1: The second arrow. The second arrow. All right.
4: I'm going to bow out. It's been nice seeing everybody.
1: Okay, See you okay. how's your... Wait, wait, wait. Before you leave, how's your hiccups?
4: Oh, the hiccups went away.
1: Oh. Okay.
4: Okay. Good night.
1: How's the How's the um? Analio. Yeah.
4: Oh, fantastic! This course is better than the last one.
1: And what is this course that you're taking?
4: The Anapanasati Sutta. Oh, neat. Yeah, it's really great. And uh, you know what? Analio meditates from two thirty a.m. to. 8.30 a.m. every morning and 5.30 p.m. to to 9.30 uh, p.m. every night. When does he have time to write all those books? <laughs> In the middle. In the <laughs> middle, he writes his books.
1: That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing.
4: That's amazing. It is.
1: And are you going to be at noon tomorrow? Or are you coming to that?
4: Uh, it is noon tomorrow.
1: No Wednesday, I mean.
4: Oh yes, Wednesday. I I will do that. Okay, I, I, I can have time. I'm I like a Nalio in the middle of things Can put that all together.
1: When when he's writing his books, okay. Yeah,
4: yeah. I write a little ten minute thing. So, Ellen, Ellen, Nalio is the teacher. So
3: yeah.
4: How do you spell that? A N A,
3: L A, Y O. Is this the one that's being done up at Barry on breathing? Yes.
4: Mindfulness of breathing. Right. I've got a friend,
3: Shokuchi, who's in there.
4: Oh, really? Cool. Yeah. What's see. her name? I'll look for her. Uh, Deirdre Shokuchi-Kerrigan. Okay. I'll look for her name.
3: All right. <laughs> Good to see you.
0: <laughs> All right. Let's write until maybe... How about eight oh five? Good. See all at eight oh five? Thank you. I didn't get much on paper on this one. It's too big.
1: Too sharp.
5: I really like um, Joko's um, uh, Joko's focus on moving into the bodily sensations and dropping the narrative.
1: We're Although getting, we getting, wait, we're getting echoing somehow.
5: why don't you better?
1: try now why don't you try now yeah
5: okay i i, I just said um that I really uh, appreciate joko's uh practice of moving into bodily sensations and dropping the narrative you know maybe starting with a narrative and noticing what you're thinking and then dropping it and moving into your bodily sensations it's it's been a very um interesting practice you know for me and um And I, it just occurred to me that what she's really doing is she's asking us um, to, how can you say, turn back towards our 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 awareness. You know, instead of getting lost or merged in thinking, to actually turn toward this conscious awareness, this whatever this is, you know, that notices and. And um, trust in that, you know, as opposed to the story. So I like that. And the other thing... So could you, wait, wait, before
1: you go on, could you say a little more about what what are you aware of?
5: uh, Well, awareness is aware of everything, everything. But we tend to get, um, what do you call it, um, magnetized by the thoughts and then the emotions that come out of it, but it's interesting that if you take away the thoughts, then the emotions have a life. The emotions have a life in you, and you can notice them. And then they move off like energy. Do you know what I mean? So it's our thought processes that are keeping it going, and uh, it's like our consciousness gets caught up with the thought process. And I and I love how she she's asking us to know, go into the body. I mean, is, are you crying? Is your tight as your throat is constricted. And that's where you begin to notice that it's um, that this is energy that's moving, you know, that needs to be, you know, needs to be felt. And, you know, one thing I I wrote about just briefly, um, and this is in uh, sort of uh, inspired by what you read, you know, by the second arrow, And, you know, they're talking about a guy who's sick and his family and the kids take it differently. But I was also thinking about uh, some really deep things that happen to people like uh, the loss of a loved one, like grief and how you need to feel the grief. But the second arrow, man, that second arrow can really come in. Um, We've had some family members and close friends who lost their lives this year. And watching how everyone around is, is handling it, especially if you lose a child, for instance, the se- you have to feel the grief. You're not going to be able to get away from the body, from the feelings of grief. But the second arrow is this shouldn't have happened. It's all my fault or it's all somebody else's fault or I can't handle this. Or this is going to kill me or it's going to go on forever these are all second arrows do you know and and um i really appreciate that the buddha is not saying that we don't feel strong emotion but that we're not adding unnecessary suffering on top of it which ramps it up and keeps you stuck in it you know um, there's no real healing So, I don't know. Those are the two things I kind of wrote about a little bit here. Um, It's a really deep practice, especially if you really have something happening uh, in your life or in your family or with your friends that's um, really painful. Yeah.
1: When we show, I'm not sure, maybe it was when we showed the movie, but some people who were psychotherapists really objected to Joko Beck because what It seems to me and to people who aren't psychotherapists that she's almost suggesting a substitute (coughs) for psychotherapy.
5: I don't know I think psychotherapy and Buddhism kind of can I mean they come together in a lot of different ways.
1: If you could could really do this would you need psychotherapy?
5: Oh no I I, this is no I'm saying that psychotherapy could be a part of the healing process Um, you know, sometimes we just need to talk about things, but I have noticed that the second arrow and I'll be, I'll talk about my own life when I lost my sister, you know, um, the grief was huge, but then all the thoughts about, I could have done something. That's where you may need some help to release those thoughts. Maybe it's not that easy to release them. And maybe that's where psychotherapy comes in. Do you, do you see so um uh, i'm just saying the process of um the, how can you say it um not being so attached to the story allows the real healing to happen
1: it's easier said than done
5: yeah and that's where again psychotherapy can come in i, I don't know how many times i've talked to flint about you know painful things or um you know peg or even I've gone recently and gotten help for family uh, issues with my son. Sometimes you need that, that warm hand to hold your hand, but it's all in service to breaking up that story. Do you know? Um, it doesn't mean you're not going to feel sad. doesn't mean you're not going to feel angry or, you know, grief, but you're not going to cling to it in the same way.
1: Who else has a second arrow? I have a lot. (laughs) You have any arrows, Nancy?
6: I have a lot. (laughs) My thoughts always jump in (laughs) when the first arrows come.
1: (laughs) And you notice notice how much um, pain you create from the second?
6: Yes. I just say that all of the sufferings are from the second errors. So if I can like eliminate those thoughts, or uh, where them and not react to them, I can be much like my life would be much better. Most of so, the time, like I regret after I said something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But, like you said, it's easy, said, and done. So,
1: like Donna Donna looks like she wants to say something.
6: Are you finished, Nancy? Oh, no, I just said uh, as a conclusion, I just need to sit more.
3: It's true. I think that sitting is what allows us to get a little bit of space when when that first arrow comes in and we can see, like Gail said, that story is starting to evolve. Um, for me, I was seeing that that's, you know, second arrow guilt, third arrow shame, fourth arrow rec- uh, uh, recrimination and, you know, on and on and on. Um, it doesn't take long to build a story out of all of that, but sitting, you know, our sitting practice is what, you know, is kind of our first line of defense and gives us, uh, you know, an opportunity to see that second arrow incoming and, you know, maybe bat it away. Um, Or, you know, if it hits, um, maybe it, it gives us the opportunity. We can recognize what it is and deal with it rather than just, you know, merrily um, following, you know, the anguish (laughs) that she's, that Joko was talking about, you know, it may, we may have a strong enough practice that allows us to back out. And if we don't, you know, I I think what she's saying is so true about every day, every day. And it's interesting that um you know the the for me i have been doing you know a lot a lot of um you know study of abhidharma and early buddhist teachings and um i i just you know came away from another abhidharma weekend retreat and it's just like i like shikantaza you know it's just um you know, the, the early Buddhist. you know, they know so much, they have explored so much. But in terms of everyday practice, I think, you know, Shikantaza's got a lot going for it. You know, never mind about the jhanas and all this other, um, just a nice daily sitting practice, just like Joko says, that you're just, you know, what's there? Look at it. Look at it. Look at it. That's how... That's
1: how we transform. So shikantaza is is uh, a, a type of sitting that is is very important in Zen. And Peg did a class on it Saturday.
0: Did
1: that, she? That you and she usually doesn't talk about it because it's so difficult to talk about. And it's on the web now. You can see it either at YouTube or if you go to teachings. And then foundation of, of uh Zen and then the 13th class. It's okay. it's the seventh one. Um
3: I will, I will definitely check that out because um I am I am ready to, to turn my attention back to Shikantaza and try to see how on earth it fits in with all this other stuff. Um, but I know that my heart belongs to Shikantaza. So
1: <laughs> well, I was recently. A few days ago, talking with someone. Well, he had been a teacher and a friend, um, like 55 years ago, and we hadn't talked since. And we had a long conversation, but it wasn't really even a conversation. It was just like him talking and talking and talking and talking and talking. And the thing in, in, in sitting or shaking taza is listening. And and uh, anyway, I'll show my piece. I did a piece. I did a piece. The second arrow is our reaction to the first arrow. Though the injury from the first can be severe, the pain from the second may stick us for the rest of our lives. How we separate the two is sometimes so difficult. Like when someone tells me I'm a frog or a wolf or whatever, why can't I just smile? And then I did a drawing. So here's the drawing, and this person is telling me I'm a wolf.
0: <laughs> Donna, do you do you have, ha, have you seen Val Goh's book?
3: Oh, yeah. So,
6: mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, Peg got a lot. I think this has really been, uh, Peg's very influenced by this right now, and she's gotten a lot of inspiration from it. I, 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 took, the, uh, I took the five, the little course, went with it from him, and, it was absolutely worth it. And just like Joko Beck, he is so much about the body, the body, the body. Stay in the body. Come back. Come back here. <laughs> now. And uh, and he's a great teacher. You just instantly love him. To, this, I, this idea of the body,
1: uh, not that I've uh, caught on entirely or at all, but... But it was so new to me when I first heard about it. Even I remember at Austin Zen Center I was sitting and all of a sudden I realized that my body was also there sitting. And I remember where I was sitting when I realized that my body was there sitting and it wasn't just my
3: mind that was sitting. How about uh, someone else?
0: Glenn, you're yawning. It's open awareness, I open my mouth. Um, no, I didn't get very far with this one. Just I was thinking too hard and by the time I was done thinking, it was time to log back on. Can, did you think of a situation
1: where you've uh, added a second arrow? Well,
0: I don't have to think very hard about that. I don't either. Know. I think I think where I see it the most in, in myself and others is uh, breakups and divorces, where, it's, um, where there's a lot of pain or, um, or job terminations, where we don't really have any cultural resources to say, you know, you're allowed to just grieve you're allowed to just feel pain, and especially men, feel pain and sit in pain and let the pain be there and and let it metabolize. So we immediate, but what we are told to do in our culture is go into story building. That son of a bitch, he said this, and then she said that, and da-da-da-da-da to build these palaces. And I think that those stories become so overpowering that they stick with us forever and they never let us be with the pain. And so it stays, it sticks around. Just like that drugs and alcohol will temporarily give you, <clears throat>
6: they
0: take you away from pain. But what they don't do is allow you to metabolize it, to allow that energy, like Gail was saying, incredibly beautiful talk, Gail, um, to let it flow out. And, and with, so we use these stories about, particularly blame, crimination is the word that um, Donna uses, is perfect. Um, and, and they stay with us forever. And, and they just, and, 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 and I think it causes people to carry pain around for decades longer than maybe they need to if they had done the super hard, danger, super hard, painful work of just sitting with the pain of these events and letting them be painful. Um, but I didn't have a chance to sort of get that out into a, into a r- written down. But yeah, I did. I, I did. I, I thought of the types of events around which we're most likely to build stories, and I see that a lot in those two, in my in myself and my contemporaries.
5: Yeah, I really like Glenn the way you pointed out that the stories and they have a emotional charge to them. You know, but they're usually angry or irritated or annoyed but what they're really doing is hiding
3: mm-hmm.
5: deeper deeper contracted hurts inside the body like grief or um shame or you know all kinds of things you know it's sort of like I'd rather be mad than feel this really deep sorrow yeah, honestly. yeah.
1: Meline or or Nancy, Nancy Outdoor.
2: Yeah, I um, I wrote something about um about losing someone um that you love, and identifying that's a second arrow. But I don't get this uh, that Gail says said about uh, the story. I mean, I understand uh, that you can identify that, but then how do you get over with that grief?
5: Well, for me, I wasn't allowing myself to really feel the grief. you know? To feel it in my body. You know how you're just, you know, like you're sobbing or you're, you know, this... Because I was, um, you know, the, the story happens. Like in my case with my sister, the story was this, she's too young to die. This should never have happened. I could have stopped it. If only I had done blah, blah, blah. You know, I could have saved her, you know, whatever the story is. And that gets the feelings up. But then what I did is I decided not to, and and sitting, what Donna's talking about and Glenn are talking about, sitting allows you to see that that's what you're doing, that you're ramping up the grief. And um, then I just decided I would just start to, I went into my body and said, what does it feel like to feel what I'm feeling?
2: Uh, Is it freezing or is it just me?
5: For a second, you froze. Or Did I freeze?
2: Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Can you repeat the last part? I um, like you allow yourself to feel the yeah, grief to, to feel the
5: physical sensations. You're you're calling it sorrow and you're calling it grief. It'll it'll identify. You know, you'll get an identifier kind of like, oh, this is sadness or something. But then, what is sadness really? And then you'll start to feel maybe tears you may you might even make noises you know and cry or sob or you'll feel this um tightness in your body and and you just just allow yourself to actually really feel that without the mental activity of saying oh this is terrible or you know it shouldn't you know just feel it just feel it and what i found in my own experience was it was amazing is that the feelings morphed it started with you know a certain degree of feeling and then it moved and you might find yourself feeling anger or what you call rage or shame or all kinds of things you can call them those you can identify them with labels but in the body what is exactly what is that you know and you feel it and it's um it's very interesting. So, you know, you know, it was a practice that I found very um, uh, illuminating because I realized that I was feeling things in my body that I had not allowed myself to really feel. Do you know what I mean? I never knew it was even there. Like, oh, my God, there's this rage in here. or Oh, my God, there's this shame in here, you know, and um And then underneath the whole thing, when the energy moves off, there was stillness, just quiet.
1: This is interesting what you're you're saying to me that that uh, we think we're grieving so much, but we're really not. It's really not going through us. Yeah. You know, the other it was a few weeks ago I had. I think it was from like a raw Brussels sprout or something, but it was like stuck in my body and I was in so much pain all night long. And then finally it ended, but, but, you know, grief isn't like that. It's so hard to do that with grief to have it. Like you say, maybe it's that we're not feeling it, that that we're stuck with it.
5: Yeah. What we're doing is we're moving off into the mental realm you know, when things happen. And that's what Glenn was bringing up. We move off into the whole story about, you know, how awful it was and that shouldn't have happened. And then we feel all these feelings and everything, but we're not really getting to the heart of it because we're stuck up here um, thinking about it. And thinking is once is removed from the actual experience.
1: And that goes along. You've heard me tell the story, I think, of... Um the Chinese Chan master in St. Louis. And when his father died, he went into his trailer and cried for three days and came out and it was all over. He was okay. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Because he
1: was able to completely feel in his body, I think, and go through it. And then he he had enough and it it was gone.
5: Yeah. I like that. Or, or the Zen story a recent one, I think contemporary, where uh, the Zen master was at uh, dinner at a restaurant with his disciples and there was a new disciple, there are a new student there. And a the Zen master got word at the table that his, a family member had died, either his wife or one of his kids in Japan. And here he was in the United States at the table and he immediately cl- collapsed into sobbing, just sobbing at the table. And this is a story, by the way, so I don't know if this really happened. And the student, the new student, asked the other students, oh, my God, look at him. I thought he was enlightened. And the other students turned around and looked at him. They they said, you haven't learned very much yet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Basically told him, (laughs) this is what enlightenment looks like. It's present. So, it's with yeah. It so is. this is
1: really important what you're bringing up that
5: yeah.
1: that it's not that it's not um,
5: It's not detached. And then how do
1: you relate this to the second arrow? Me. The
5: second arrow is the unnecessary thinking about it, right?
1: Rather than actually processing, maybe.
5: Rather than actually feeling the energetic movement of
1: your emotions. Yeah, Malene, what do you think?
2: Um it uh, I mean it, it sounds interesting that the thing is how how you can take it uh, for your own life, you know. Uh, and because um I I can relate also this idea about no attachments uh, but when you love someone, for example, my mother and how can you
0: deal
5: with that? It's an ongoing question, isn't it?
0: It's a practice.
5: It's a practice. And it's not like you get over the grief, like it happens and then you're totally and completely done. No, no. You know, uh, if you've lost somebody close to you, Those emotions are going to come up like waves periodically, maybe throughout your life more intensely after it happens, but maybe later every so often, who knows. But the point is, you're not getting over. You're not getting over the actual experience. You're experiencing it as it happens, and then it flows through you. And then it may come back again, but you're not torturing yourself with a story about it i mean as long as we're in a human body we're going to suffer we're going to have old age death um sickness illness all those things they're going to be happening because we're in this body but it's allowing um it not to stick in you in a way where your entire existence is about the suffering and the stories Because so the, it's true, you know so yeah you don't ever get over a deep loss how would you how could you possibly predict the future and say i'm over it so
1: That's the other happens. side of this is is called spiritual bypassing where people yeah. think they can use this technique yeah. to not feel things and, and that, like my sisters told me once, well, there were two Buddhists on the, at this funeral and they didn't seem like, they, they were just joking around and they weren't feeling sad and that, you know, and is that, is that what this, you know, Buddhism thing is all about? And th- that was her question. Um,
0: I am. Um, Elena, I heard, I heard you say something. I'm glad Gail's on the, <laughs> on the call. I, I heard you say something about no attachments. And I, th- I think, and that, and I, I wanted to understand that better. I, I think that the, when, when my understanding of Joko Beck is when she's saying no attachments, she means not attaching to just letting grief arise and letting it fall, letting it come, feeling it completely in your body whatever that looks like and just letting it run its course maybe in a minute or an hour or a day. But when, but attachment is when we start telling ourselves stories about the grief. Like, if I hadn't done such and such, she'd still be alive. Or, do you know whose fault this is? This is uh, his fault, my dad's fault. If he had done such and we start building these stories and that is attaching. That is attaching. When we build the story, we're attaching to the grief. And then it stops. It's like it's on a fish hook. It can't escape. And we won't let it escape because we have this story. We've got it these hooks in it that we created. So the no attachment is not letting go of your of the loved one. It's not the it's it's not that we're not gonna have grief. I lost both my parents recently and there's always going to be grief. It's always there. My practice is just let it come and let it go and not grab a hold of it and start um, negotiating or telling stories about it or blaming me or them or the hospital or anything like that. Just let it rise and let it fall. It'll always be there. I think that's where Joko's going in, in this chapter.
5: Yeah, that's my understanding of attachment. It's attaching to a story line about what what's happened. And there are as many stories as there are billions of people on the planet. You know, I, I, I even experienced the death of my sister differently than my mother or my father. And everybody's going to have a different uh, you know perspective on that. But the grief remains, the sadness and the missing and, you know, and and that's, that's fine. There's a part of that to me that's just, it's another aspect of love. It's actually kind of lovely, you know, in some ways. I cry every once in a while when I'm reminded of my sister or when I, you know, think of my father. Um, so...
1: It puts you in touch with a part of yourself that you don't normally walk around with yeah and and i heard a rabbi talking about this when he lost his one of his parents and he he said he he wished even that he could stay in that place because he so treasured what it had brought up in him Mm -hmm. and it wasn't you know it certainly was he was very attached to i i don't remember whether it was his mother or father but he was very attached to them and uh and then really saw what it did to him mm-hmm. and liked that.
5: Well, when you give up the stories, you can actually move into the tenderness to that open-hearted love, you know, that's, it's, I think it's what we are.
1: So this is the practice. Nancy, outdoors.
7: I really liked both of these chapters, they really resonated, Um, and I was thinking like you, Glenn, thinking more than writing, but thinking about times when I accidentally by sheer dumb luck didn't go to that second arrow. I I was, for whatever reasons, I just didn't have the reactions, I just had the absorption of, of what was happening. And it turned out so much better in the long run (laughs) when I didn't. So I I do really like what was said in these chapters. Elaine, the, the best description I ever heard of grief is that it's like someone gives you a five pound bag of sugar or rocks to carry. And when you first take it on, it's awfully heavy and you have to carry it for the rest of your life, but you kind of get used to carrying it. It's always there, it doesn't go away, but you just get used to it.
6: Thank you very much. And I think when we can stay with, we will see the connection with other people, because we all have grief.
0: Yes, empathy. Well, are we uh, done for the evening? Um, Well, I have a lot to think about now. I I think I'm going to go meditate, really. Oh, good. Um, Thank you all so much for sharing your practice. That was a beautiful, beautiful Monday night. I don't know a better way to spend a Monday night um, than this. I'll we'll see you next week. Same, Thank you for same sure. time, same place.
7: Thank you.
3: Thank you very much.